Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, January 13. I'm Katrina Blowers and today we're going to look into whether we should impose further restrictions to contain the spread of Omicron. Pretty much all of us now know someone who's got it. And some epidemiologists reckon lockdowns should be going back on the table to limit the spread of the virus. There's no rule that says that variants always get less severe. So if a new variant appears... Yes, it's possible that it might be in the future more severe, and I'm talking about in the future, whether it's in three months or whether it's in three years. Annika Smithhurst, when you hear the word lockdown, do you just have a full body convulsion? <laughs> a little bit. I think I've almost given up. It's just uh, it's easier to assume we will go back into lockdown just to perhaps get through it if we inevitably do. But fingers crossed that's not where we end up. Let's hope so. Let's get into today's headlines. Prince Andrew has failed in his bid to have his sex case trial thrown out of court. The lawsuit against the royal has been filed by Virginia Dufresne, who alleges she was sexually trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein to Prince Andrew when she was just 17 years old. So this New York judge who threw out this bid says that the complaint uh, filed by Dufresne is neither unintelligible nor vague nor ambiguous and that it alleges discrete incidents of sexual abuse in particular circumstances at three identifiable locations. Prince Andrew denies the allegations, with his attorneys arguing the lawsuit violates the terms of Dufresne's 2009 settlement agreement with Epstein when she was paid half a million US dollars. Now, the royal isn't named in that agreement. Prince Andrew's side is also arguing the lawsuit doesn't detail her abuse and that it's unconstitutional to file it decades later. The prince could face a trial date between September and December this year. That's just going to be massive news when that happens. National Cabinet is expected to extend relaxed ISO requirements for close contacts to a number of key industries today. So it's hoped this move is going to ease the crisis that's leaving supermarket shelves bare right across the country. With so many cases appearing every day and that expected to continue uh, until its peak, this will have an obvious impact right across our supply chains. So at the moment, workers in food production and distribution don't have to isolate if they're a close contact with no symptoms. Those rules could be extended to the education sector, aged care, vets, physiotherapists and waste collection. So the transport sector in particular is a major choke point. Uh, Up to 50% of workers are affected by COVID-19. Also in hospitality, I'm sure, you know, many of you have tried to go out for a coffee, have noticed the signs up around cafes. Hospitality absenteeism is around 50% at the moment. The PM is going to be asking states and territories to scrap testing requirements of truckies at the borders too. My goodness, what a difference is 2022, (laughs) hey? (laughs) It certainly is. Another idea to be put forward would be drafting in welfare recipients to help where they can, while international students would be allowed to work more hours. Another day, another story about Novak Djokovic, who is still facing deportation after admitting there was an error on his visa application. Yes, on arrival, his team filled out documents saying the world number one had not travelled in the past 14 days prior to coming to Australia. But that wasn't the case. He actually flew from his home country of Serbia to Spain before travelling to Melbourne for the tournament. 
You know, Major Mia Culpa, the tennis star, has also apologised for doing a press interview after receiving a positive PCR test, which is actually in breach of Serbia's COVID rules, and said he should have rescheduled the commitment, you think? Uh, Djokovic's <laughs> mum has pleaded on Channel 7 to let her son play. Don't throw him out. He is a tennis player. He's not politician. He is not a criminal. He is not murderer. He is just tennis player, the best in the world. Just let him play. Mm, that the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, is continuing to consider whether to deport Djokovic as not doing so could create a dangerous precedent. Meanwhile, Czech doubles player Renata Voracova has vowed to get compensation from Tennis Australia after she was deported, despite coming in on exactly the same medical exemption as Djokovic. I can understand why she'd be a bit cranky about that. The US President has made a speech calling for a rewrite of Senate rules to save US democracy. The battle for the soul of America is not over. We must stand strong and stand together to make sure January 6th marks not the end of democracy, but the beginning a renaissance of our democracy. So these changes Joe Biden is talking about here would mean new democratic laws would be put in place, making it easier to vote. And these federal laws, if they pass, would be going up against dozens of laws, making it harder to vote in 19 Republican-controlled states. A direct result of former President Donald Trump maintaining that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen, despite uh, not yet really producing any evidence um, to back his case. Now Biden still needs two votes from his own party to stop the filibuster and allow the bills to be passed. Now, a filibuster is a parliamentary manoeuvre effectively requiring a 60-vote majority in the Senate instead of a straight majority. And over in Britain, the PM Boris Johnson is refusing to resign after attending a BYO party at Downing Street during lockdown in May 2020. Annika, these guys in um, the UK, politicians there, seem to have the best social life ever. (laughs) (laughs) Ones in Canberra have a pretty good time too. Look, the pictures are pretty incriminating over there though. Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition Labor Party, has called for the resignation in the House of Commons overnight. The party's over, Prime Minister. The only question is, will the British public kick him out? Will his party kick him out? Or will he do the decent thing and resign? So Johnson's private secretary had sent an email to over 100 staff inviting them to, quote, socially distance drinks, despite the rest of the country restricted to meeting one person they did not live with outside. This was Johnson's response to the scandal in Parliament. When I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May 2020 to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later to continue working, I believed implicitly that this was a work event. Mm, And this is the opposition leader's response to that. His defence that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) (laughs) It's so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. So a lot of British people are angry, Annika, because at that stage they weren't able to go to funerals and weddings with the number of people that they would have liked to have had and then to see the British PM having uh, these socially distanced drinks has, um, yeah, really inflamed tensions there. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be getting out of it. Just last month, The Guardian 
published a photo showing the UK Prime Minister with dozens of other people drinking wine at a different party in the same garden during the same month in 2020. And as you say, that was right at a difficult time for the UK and a lot of people were struggling. So not a lot of sympathy for Bojo with this one. All right, Annika, we are going to be speaking to one of the country's top epidemiologists about whether we should be putting tougher restrictions back on the table. If you've managed to dodge getting COVID so far, you're probably feeling a little bit like you're living on borrowed time. Chances are right now you know someone who's either had it very recently or who's got it right at this point in time. After isolating ourselves from the rest of the world and enduring some of the harshest border closures and lockdowns on earth, especially where I am in Victoria, Australia's reopening has meant we now have the highest number of COVID cases since the pandemic began. Yeah, so the PM has been accused of letting the virus rip. Uh, Scott Morrison says Australia has actually made the tough choice to soldier on and the best possible medical advice that he's getting is not to lock down but to push through. Omicron is a gear change and we have to push through. But a trio of health experts disagrees. They're calling for a major rethink of our reopening, including the reintroduction of restrictions. You don't want to hear it, but that's the case. Because the original reopening plan, they say, was based on the Delta variant, and we still need more time to understand what this new version of the virus will mean. Yeah, these people who are sounding the warning bell, they're not just nobodies, they're some pretty heavy hitters. Professor Sharon Lewin, who's the director of the Doherty Institute, Greg Dore, a professor of infectious diseases and epidemiology at the Kirby Institute, and John Caldor, who's a professor of epidemiology at the Kirby Institute and the Uni of New South Wales. And Professor Caldor joins us on the briefing now. Professor Caldor... We were all very excited to have, you know, those borders reopened and some of those restrictions eased, particularly over Christmas and and New Year. Where are you at with this now? Do you think we need to bring in some of those restrictions again? And if so, which ones? These are decisions that are very difficult for governments and many experts have their views on exactly what's needed and when. And, And I think a lot of them are making those recommendations on on the basis of information that's incomplete. So I do have great sympathy for governments having to balance the uh, competing needs for people to get back to their normal lives, but also to protect the health system and people's health as much as possible. So I think it's very difficult to give exact prescriptions and that is, is the government's job. But there are some ways that we can reduce transmission quite substantially without really having an undue or or extreme effect on on people's lives. And I think some of the most obvious ones were re-implemented in certainly New South Wales and other parts of the country before Christmas and the indoor mask wearing was a really important one. And we've seen people really get on board with that very well, although I think there is a degree to which people actually put their masks on and use them properly. But other ones that I think are really important are the restrictions on how much people can actually gather indoors in settings, particularly where there's alcohol, dance, that sort of thing. And so we did see the uh, return of restrictions on effectively what you might call night spots or nightclub type of atmospheres where 
there would be people gathering in large numbers indoors. And this is where a lot of the transmission has been really happening. So things have moved in that direction. And I think it's really important to see the impact those new changes are able to have on on transmission. Is this recommendation for restrictions more about buying time while we learn about it? Or is it just a reality that whilst we live in pandemic times, no matter how mild it is, we're going to need some form of restrictions? Well, I think we've all learned about different things that we need to consider. And one really obvious one that we didn't think too much about before the pandemic was what we do when we have respiratory symptoms of various kinds. And I think everyone's very conscious now about not going to the presence of others, no matter what the reason for our respiratory symptoms are. And that's a, a practice that I think will stand us in good stead and have to be maintained. What I don't think we'll have to do on the sort of scale that we did in the past was go down to those very severe restrictions where people are confined to their homes or very tight radiuses around their neighbourhoods. And uh, particularly we're restricted from doing things like even outdoor exercise, because compared to some of the other ways we can reduce transmission, the impact of those measures is probably very limited and it does really cause people a lot of personal harm in a sense of restricting their freedoms. We've certainly seen many countries in Europe go back to lockdowns again. Do you think that is an option for Australia? Do you think we should be looking at pulling that out as a, as a last resort if needed? Well, you know, with COVID, we've seen twists and turns that have not been predicted. And I think it's important never to say never because the options have to be available to us as events unfold. But I think it's reasonable to see that the sorts of restrictions that are a few levels up from those extreme ones are the ones that really do the job for us, particularly if the severity is on a much reduced scale as it seems to be for this variant. But what we don't know, and I don't think it's scaremongering or fearmongering to say that New variants appear, and as new variants appear, we do need to figure out how serious they are. There's no rule that says that variants always get less severe. So if a new variant appears, yes, it's possible that it might be in the future more severe, and I'm talking about in the future, whether it's in three months or whether it's in three years. And so whatever response is going to be needed for that particular version will have to be considered. And we've also been, to a large extent, fortunate with the variants, even the the worst part of the pandemic so far is that really it hasn't affected a broad range of age groups and particularly children, young people have been relatively unaffected. But imagine some variant that had uh, properties in that regard that were worse. I think that the options would have to be considered that would restrict the risk of transmission so that that uh, concern could be addressed. And as I said, I don't want to say that's going to happen, but we've seen the twists and turns with this pandemic that have not been anticipated and we must learn as new information comes to hand. One of the things I wanted to ask about was those mask mandates. Now, some people do it voluntarily. They wear the masks. Just before Christmas in Victoria, they reintroduced mandatory masks and it was said to be that it was the difference between, say, 50% of people wearing them when it's recommended versus somewhere upwards of 90% when they're mandated. So is it important, I guess, to have rules as opposed to just recommendations? Do we see a higher uptake in those circumstances? And how essential is it that we do wear masks, at least in indoor settings? Yeah, well, look, even if there's not severe levels of of enforcement and punishments of people who don't comply, I think uh, when you have things like a mask requirement, it does help in a lot of regards. First of all, yes, there will be a lot of people who'll do it voluntarily, and that's fine. 
But if there are the others who either forget or decide that on that day they don't feel like it, it's very difficult for others around them to implicitly or even explicitly remind each other, hey, where's your mask, if there's no actual mandate. So it does actually make that communication among people in society a lot easier if there is a, a requirement. In the most extreme cases where people are willfully in difficult situations not complying, then there is the opportunity to reinforce it. But I think that should be very much the minimum of cases. And there's been a lot of uh, comparisons between different laws that we have to protect each other and to protect ourselves in, in society that we quite happily go along with. You know, things like seatbelts is an example that's often cited for the various restrictions that have been put in place. And we accept that there are some people who don't think it's they, they shouldn't be told to do it, but on the whole, it's keeping everyone safe if we have these requirements and we can just assume that everybody is is aware of them. And I almost fear your answer for the next one. I have tennis tickets coming up in a couple of weeks. Large gatherings have obviously been problematic right from the start of the pandemic. Do you think they should be able to go ahead and should they be capped? Is there a difference between outdoor and indoor or should we just, whilst we still have the pandemic, avoid these sort of mass events? Everybody has to make their personal choices about what they go to and what they don't go to. But I think it's fair to say that the vast volume of transmission is not taking place in outdoor events. Now, of course, when you do have large events where people have to uh, particularly go through more confined spaces to get to where they're going to sit or if people are going to move around and mingle at places where they get food, there are greater opportunities for transmission. But I think the authorities have shown that they can manage these events pretty well and it is going to be a decision in, in a formal sense for each government around Australia to make those decisions. And I think it's difficult to uh, come up with specific recommendations about total comprehensive restrictions. You've got to balance a whole range of factors with the reducing of risk. And it's not all about just reducing risks to zero because we know that society would just cease to function if that was the case. As an epidemiologist and being at this stage of the pandemic and knowing what we know about the Omicron variant, how are you feeling? Are you feeling optimistic? <laughs> I guess I've been looking at this closely enough to know that there are always surprises around the corner with the pandemic so far. And rather than being optimistic and or pessimistic, I think we have to be realistic and try and uh, adjust our lives in ways that are consistent with the potential for transmission to be continuing and just try to figure out what that right balance is. Just as governments are doing for, this, for society as a whole, we've got to figure out what that balance is for us as individuals. And different people with their different work and family arrangements will have different ways they deal with it and different tolerances and different thresholds for risk. So I think it's still a, I would want to say a tense time, but it's still a time of, of some anticipation as we all as a society get through this. That was John Caldor, who's a professor of epidemiology at the Kirby Institute and the Uni of New South Wales. And Annika, I know you're in Melbourne and you've really been through the worst of the, the lockdowns in Australia. What interests me talking to some of my friends in Melbourne is that I would have thought you guys would have been busting at the seams to get out and about, you know, get out of your house, get, get out into the public again. But many people I know know who live in Melbourne and Victoria are still very much staying at home. 
Yeah, I think it's just the reality at the moment. Everywhere you go, uh, there seems to be cases and, um, you know, these events do seem to be that it's like dodging it. You know, you, if you go out and manage to socialise and not get it, it's just, I guess, delaying the inevitable. I haven't had it yet. I've got a young baby. So we're really staying indoors, almost a self-imposed sort of isolation. I guess it's not as bad as the original one um, as we discussed with the professor there. There is a difference between, I guess, being forced to do things, being forced to wear masks or being forced to stay inside versus you having the choice to do it. But I think you're right. The idea that this summer was meant to be about, you know, liberation and freedom and, and we're 90% vaccinated and life would go back to normal really isn't it the case. It's so quiet and usually this time of year in Melbourne, between the Boxing Day test and, and the tennis, the city is usually quite alive. And look, there are a lot of people in restaurants, but it's not quite the same as previous summers I've uh, spent in my home state. And on tomorrow's briefing, I know Omicron has been on everyone's mind, but there's also a huge situation unfolding in the Ukraine. And we're going to take a deep dive into that. Listener.